Quick message here before we get going into this episode. If you want to see the video version of this episode, the full video, head over to YouTube now and go to my channel, Independent Thought. The video version of this episode is the same name as this episode. Thank you. Please enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. For today's episode, I am bringing you yet another candidate episode. This is the fourth one that we're doing this season for season four. And for this candidate episode of October, we are joined by Daniel Wilson, a represent, oh, a candidate who is running to represent Ventura County this year out of California. Uh, currently, that is the 26th district of California, but California is one of the states that's currently redistricting, so we're not sure exactly where the final district will lay, but nevertheless, Daniel, thank you for joining Independent Thoughts today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, I want to go ahead and just dive right in. You know, typically whenever we have one of these episodes, the first things first, we want to get a little bit of a couple personal questions to kind of get to know you a little bit before we dive into the issues. So, the first thing I want to know, which is a question that I ask a lot of people involved in politics, is what exactly drew you into the political sphere in general? Have you always kind of been politically active or did you become more interested a little bit like later in life, like, you know, high school, college, so on and so forth? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you for that question. So I'm actually one of the millions. I was the, for a long time, I was a silent majority. I was a completely inactive voter for the majority of my life. Uh, the first time I ever voted, um, well, the second time I ever voted was in uh, 2016. I voted once um, in 2002 when I was the first time that I was eligible to vote. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, for the next uh, almost 20 years, I never cast a ballot again. I never paid any attention to what was going on around me. As far as political, we, uh, we believe that we don't matter and that no matter what happens, no matter what we put our vote out to, that it, it's not going to change the system. And we've come a long way from that. And our registration numbers, you know, nationally and here locally are climbing. But I've actually seen a discouraging trend of, again, people are getting frustrated with electoral politics and wanting to withdraw. And I am here to be so eager and so enthusiastic to encourage everybody to continue voting because it is the most important thing that we can do. Um, so I've done a complete, a complete 180 to believing that my vote didn't matter to come understanding that it is one of the most important things that we can do as residents of a, of a country. Absolutely. I mean, and yes, it very much is so. I mean, that's, I mean, I definitely believe in that. I'm hosting a political podcast. So obviously getting people engaged in politics, something that I firmly believe in. Now you told me when we spoke previously that one of the figures that kind of led to you, I guess, re-emerging into the, into politics, getting reactivated was Bernie Sanders. You told me that he kind of inspired you a little bit watching his campaign for president. What exactly was it about his campaign that inspired you and how has that translated into what you do now? Absolutely, uh, thank you again. So 
with Bernie Sanders, it was the first time we ever saw a political candidate stand up for the people. And a lot of candidates have said that throughout, throughout our, our American history and our political history. But it was the first one who said solemnly, I'm here for you and I stand for you and I fight with you. And then instead of just talking the talk, he actually turned around and walked the walk. And he said to the billionaires who buy our elections, he said to the corporations and the lobbyists who rig our elections and make sure that certain candidates get in over others. Um, he told them, no, no more. Uh, this is, I'm, I'm paid for by, by the, the grassroots, by the people and uh, not the billionaires, as he would say. So um, uh, yeah, absolutely. It was just um, really uh, inspiring to watch somebody um, actually fight for the people and you can hear it, you can see it and everything that he did. Um, and while we don't have to agree with all of his decisions ever since then, nobody can deny that he has ignited a generation to care about politics that was really quickly becoming a politically lost generation. We had nothing to fight for, no reason to be involved um, as a millennial. Uh, I'm sure you can relate to a lot of the things that uh, have, have shaped my political life and, and both the withdrawal and the inclusion of now being involved in the politics. So yeah, absolutely, Bernie Sanders. Um, uh, I, uh, he inspired me so much that I, I canvassed for him quite a few times. And then I also started volunteering at the polls in 2016 and, uh, did that, um, for the next four years, actually in the 2018. And then I actually, uh, got a job with the County elections office. I just, once that fire was ignited, it's just been almost impossible to put out. I've just been insatiable to get involved and learn more and know more, and then also spread that education. Absolutely. And, you know, Figuring out exactly what shapes people's political beliefs has always been very interesting to me as a reason why I asked that question so much. And, and so kind of like diving a little bit further into that now, you also said that you spent some time in the Navy. Now, how exactly did that service impact your politics now? And is, is there like a particular story that I guess would have led to how it did impact your politics? Sure. So I would say that at the time, I would have told you that it didn't affect me at all, that as far as politically, that because I was a non-voter when I went in and when I got out, I was still a non-voter. So I served from 2009 until 2013. So it was still three years later before I, I was politically engaged and involved. So if you had asked me when I left the Navy, I would have said it didn't, it didn't change my political beliefs at all. I still believe what I believe then. I just have a little bit more understanding of what the military is and involves. Um, I have always been anti-war. So that, while it was doubled down and I am more firmly rooted in it and I can explain why I'm anti-war more than I could have, say, when I was 18, 19 years old, um, when I first graduated from high school. So um, this is another thing that really, I guess, has shaped me even before the military was uh, I was a senior in high school when the Twin Towers fell. I watched it in homeroom as the, the towers fell in New York. And then I grew up less than 30 minutes from the Pentagon where we watched the, the third plane hit. Um, and many of us, um, not only did we want to go enlist, but there were also even more military recruiters at the schools than I had ever seen. And they were absolutely relentless with us kids, whether we, we wanted to be involved or not, they talked to all of us. And um, a lot of us wanted to, like I said, so we, we followed that path anyway. I started to look into it. I even took like the pretests and uh, the ASVAP is what it's called and, and started looking into some things. But um, at the time, uh, full disclosure for your audience, I'm a trans male. 
um, something else that has shaped my political beliefs a lot. Um, but uh, at the time I was living as, as an open female, as an open lesbian, and um, uh, that was still under the don't ask, don't tell in, in 2001. And so I already didn't agree with the war, where we were going, why we were going, and then I was uh, a lesbian. So um, I didn't end up enlisting at the time. You know, fast forward a uh, number of years later, I ended up enlisting anyway. Um, so I was always anti-war. I didn't believe that we were, should have been over there. Um, and watching everything that's happening now, 20 years later, that's probably something you might want to discuss at specifically at some point, but the withdrawal from Afghanistan and everything that's happening there. Um, there's a lot of mixed emotions with the veterans who, um, you know, people that, that didn't come home. And there's a lot of questions, and that's a whole other thing we can get into. So I would say when I got out of the Navy, it didn't affect me. Um, but once I got politically engaged and involved in 2016, and I applied the knowledge and the experience of being in the Navy to my politics, that has shaped me to be anti-war, anti-imperialist. I believe we need to close our overseas military bases. It's absurd that we are the only nation in the world that has bases in other places. It's just absolutely unacceptable. We have over 80, 800 bases in 80 different countries. If anybody wanted to do that here, we would consider it an act of war. And yet we expect other, other nations to willfully let us there. Um, we still have colonies. That was something that really shook me in my, in my education at um, learning that um, we, we call them territories and, and you know, protectorates, but uh, we still have, uh, have colonies. So I'm anti-colonial, anti-imperialist, anti-war, um, and all of that definitely comes out in, in my politics for sure. Right. And I, I do appreciate you talking about that because, you know, we are recording this episode, you know, uh, about a month before it's going to be released. But, you know, currently what we're seeing is a heavy, heavy dose of like pro-war interventionist rhetoric coming through the media right now. And it's happening on both sides. It's happening yes. in, you know, left-leaning media and in right-leaning media. And that kind of like leads me into my next question. You've decided to run in this race as a nonpartisan. Now, can you explain to me why you're choosing to do that right now? Uh, because it feels as though in our current political landscape, you know, you almost have to pick a side, in, unfortunately, but you've chosen not to. Why is that? Um, so that is really interesting that you phrase it that way. I had, um, I've, I've been talking to people for a long time about this, but just in the last, I would say two to three weeks, I've gotten that specific question. You have to, or been told you need to pick a side. Um, and so this is really interesting that you, you worded it that way, because that has been a, been a common theme. I've been told in, in our hyperpartisan system, you have to pick a side or you're going to be seen as weak or wishy-washy or ambivalent on certain things. And I challenge all of those notions. I 100% believe that I have chosen a side and I've chosen the people. There will never be a party, a corporation, a lobbyist, or some fossil fuel executive standing between me and my constituents, period. And so that is the side that I have chosen is the side of the people. Um, and the reason is actually our hyperpartisanship in this country, um, both uh, through my experience working at the polls, um, volunteering on the outside, and then working for the county office, working on the inside, and then my experience running for office. Anytime politics starts to get brought up, especially since the, I mean, politics was already hyperpartisan in our country, and 2016 just set everything on fire. And it's been so incredibly divisive. I saw a clip uh, this morning or yesterday, somebody pulled his truck off onto the side of the road to go scream at a news anchor that was reporting just on the hurricane. Right. We are so politically charged that this gentleman who was just saying, 
oh, there's wind and, and rain and the things are flooded. And this gentleman pulled over his truck and reported accurately, reported accurately. It's wind and rain. I'm reporting it accurately. I'm standing in it, sir. But that, so even to the weather, we can't discuss the weather without it being political and hyperpartisan. And so I think that a couple things lead to that. One, for so long, you've heard the motto or the mantra, two things you don't talk about in a bar is religion and politics. Right? These are the things you don't talk about at a family thing is religion and politics. And, and I think that's actually done us a great disservice is that we don't talk about politics. Everybody's so sure. afraid. And that's before it was set on fire. That, you know, and sure, there was still hyperpartisanship, but it, it, it always seemed it was like there was fringes always fighting and then there was a lot of moderates in the middle where I feel like now it's more fringes on both sides, extreme fighting, and then a slim amount of moderates that are, have no idea what's going on around them as far as like, where do I go? What do I do? Everybody's crazy. Um, and so with that, what I've found is that having conversations with people, whether it's about a specific political person, uh, policy, legislation, our environment, the weather, any and all of it, you get responses, oh, well, you're just a stupid Democrat, or, you know, oh, you're, you're a dumb Republican. And I say, well, no, I'm, I'm neither, actually. And Desmond, you can see them physically relax. Right. And then they go, tell me about that. I didn't know you could do that. What do you mean you're not either? And you're running for office, especially now that I'm running for office, it's even more confusing to them because even when you don't choose red or blue, even when you don't choose Democrat or Republican, you have to go green or independent or libertarian. There's still a party that you are told you have to jump into. Right. And I am here to tell everybody that you don't. And now I am extremely spoiled here in California and I can explain why I have a better shot at doing this than a lot of other states. I have a path to the, to the nomination or sorry, I have a path to the ballot without a Democratic or Republican, without a party nomination at all. So I'm especially spoiled here, and it's what I think we need to expand to our entire country. Um, so uh, I've chosen to run nonpartisan, and other people are doing so. Since Nina, it was already a huge withdrawal after the 2020 election. We had record numbers leaving both the Republican and the Democratic Party, either switching their registry and not just saying, oh, I'm not voting for them again going through the steps to change their registration to other or nonpartisan, no party preference, depending on your state's language. language. Um, and so then um, it's just continued to go that way. You know, the, the withdrawal from overseas, the, you know, continued economic instability. We can't blame it on any one party anymore. Both parties have been involved in all of these things that are failing us right now. And so I'm telling everybody, choose different, choose, you know, this is the nonpartisan revolution that has begun. Um, since Nina Turner's loss in Ohio, there have been three candidates that have withdrawn from the Democratic Party. A congressional candidate in uh, San Francisco, I'll leave their names out of my mouth and let them tell their own story, but a political, a congressional candidate in San Francisco, a state assembly candidate in Maryland, and now a, um, She's running again, I will say this one, she announced it on, on Instagram, Paula Jean Swearingen has also just left the Democratic Party. And so not only are people fed up with, you know, politics and the, and the partisanship, but saying, you know, we're, we're forging a different path here. And just because a lot of the pushback I'm hearing is you, you have to choose a side, you have to pick a party, or there's no path. 
And I'm here to tell everybody, just because you can't see the path doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I'm from Maryland. I'm used to shoveling snow. Let's clear this path. Let's make a new one. The, the game has been rigged for so long. I feel like we have to write new rules and, okay. and just take a different path. Okay. Got the shovel and snow analogy in there. I like it. <laughs> As a, also a northerner here, you know, sometimes you got to break out the shovels a little bit, but you know, Absolutely. there are a, many different, you know, things I would have liked to touch on just right there. But I think the thing sure. that you're touching on the most is staying true to the people itself. And if that is the case, then it doesn't really matter if you have a party or not that you're attached to. But, you know, kind of what you were talking about in that video that you saw, where you saw that the, the man run out of the truck. I also saw that video. So, you know, shout out to the Rational National. Saw that video recently. David Dahl. David uh, Dahl. Yeah. And, you know, Hurricane Ida, uh, you know, hit Louisiana, you know, end of Travesty. August. Yeah. And what we were hearing is that that storm, just like so many other storms, was a product of, you know, increased warm water due to climate change, which is why it was like tied for the second strongest hurricane to ever hit Louisiana. Right. So with that being said, I want to start focusing now on issues specifically. Sure. So in regards to climate change, I live here in the Northwest. We spent a good portion of our summer under smoke, how we have been for you know, the last several years now, I mean, it feels like almost every single year we can't enjoy our summers anymore because we're breathing in smoke for the entire summer, if not mostly the entire summer. So right. there is several options out there for how you can address climate change. Obviously people, you know, notably always talk about the Green New Deal, but I want to ask you specifically, if elected, you're sitting in the halls of Congress, what kind of legislation would you propose in order to address climate change? Absolutely. Um, so I think that it's, it's number one, a travesty was happening in Louisiana. Not only could it have been prevented both off of climate mitigation policies and processes, but also this is exactly what happened at Katrina. It's exactly what happened. And it is almost to the day that it had happened again on the anniversary of it. And it's still the levees failed. There wasn't enough. So not only is it climate and environmental devastation, but government rot and neglect for not taking care of the infrastructure that would have saved these people's lives and their property and their livelihoods, um, businesses that may never come back, houses, just, I mean, the, the Twitter was on fire the other night, just people tweeting out what houses people were sitting on top of, they were trapped in their attic, just begging for resources, millions of people without power. And it's, it's a failure at every level. And that is what we are seeing, whether, in your, whether you're in the, on the West Coast, in the Northwest, in the South, the Southeast, the Northeast, there is infrastructure failures and government failures that have, are being exacerbated when our man-made climate devastation rolls back to bite us because we both failed our infrastructure, our people, and our climate. And so it's so multifaceted that there's, there's there's no one fix for it because we need to change who's in office. We need to change who's making certain decisions. As far as I was having a conversation with a constituent yesterday about the impact that a public works department has on a local community because they decide where money goes and what parks they renovate or if they put it into a contractor's pocket and it never sees a park. So all the way down from our local, very local appointed and elected offices all the way up to the president, we've been failed. And so immediately it's so sad that the Green New Deal legislation hasn't been passed because it's not even a legislation. If you read the bill, all it calls for is government acknowledgement that something needs to happen. 
It's not even legislation to be enacted. It's just the government saying, yes, we should probably do something. And we can't even get a vote on that, nor it passed. That needs to happen first and foremost, because nobody's gonna do anything with any other environmental legislation that gets put up if we cannot even vote and agree that something needs to be done. So that is first and foremost what needs to happen. Um, if it needs to be reproposed as a different name, this, yes, slogans are good and it helps people understand what your message is because they've heard it before, it becomes familiar. But there is also a point where a slogan becomes detractive and destructive from the point and from the mission. And so if the only reason the Republicans, conservatives, moderates won't sign on to that piece of legislation is because it says the words Green New Deal, which is really petty to let a lot of people suffer and die because of a slogan, but then let's change it. You know what, if that's the problem, let's change it. Let's call it whatever they'll agree to and get it voted in so that we can agree that this needs to happen. And then that opens the door for the legislation to get passed. There's a wonderful piece of legislation, or it's not an actual piece of legislation yet, um, but it's a, it's called the Red, Black, and Green New Deal, and it is a multi-year, multi-issue initiative designed to educate and catalyze Black people to take actions that mitigate the impact of the global climate crisis on Black lives. So we need to stop just looking at climate destruction and realize that it is the lowest income communities that are always hit the hardest and hit first. And so instead of just saying, oh, well, we're gonna make everything pretty and green, we need to make sure that these communities that have been neglected and left behind where they are surrounded by compressor stations. We're actually fighting um, SoCal gas right here in our local community of Ventura County because they wanna expand and, um, and make this compressor station that is already poisoning children. They wanna make it bigger. There are three schools within two mile radius of this that will be poisoned, that will be toxicified. And they're trying to rush this through without doing the proper environmental studies that would tell them the impacts because they know that if they did that, they wouldn't be allowed to operate there. And so those are the things that we really need to look at on a local level is where have these companies, these, these um, utility companies been allowed to set up shop. I driving home today from uh, helping my wife set up her office. There is an oil, there are live oil rigs within feet of farms. Those food feeds us here and Ventura County is one of the largest agricultural exporters of not only the, this, this, this state, but the country. And it's, a, it's allowed. That is 100% legal for them to have an oil rig within feet of where they're growing food that feeds us. Seems pretty sketchy to me. Exactly. And so, it's, so we need to look at where these companies have been allowed to drill, where they're allowed to set up shop. And then I also saw something recently that there are thousands of evacuated mines all over this country where the companies were like, either they went bankrupt, they couldn't make money off of it, they couldn't get the resources out that they needed, especially when the local population stood up and said, you need to get the heck out of here. They just left all their tools, they left all the things there and just dipped. And so there's a lot of things, there are wells and things that we don't even know that are just leaking because they're no longer anybody's responsibility. And so we need a complete environmental assessment, first and foremost, coast to coast, north to south, east to west, top to bottom, everything, every environment needs to be inspected. We have neighborhoods that are being polluted. We have natural parks that are being destroyed. So first and foremost, we need an environmental assessment. And I think that what the Green New Deal aims to do when it does become legislation that we are starting to vote on is that 
We need a civilian climate corps. We need a civilian conservation corps again. We have millions of people that are still unemployed and we have environmental resources that are being destroyed. Put them to work rebuilding our resources. Plant trees, clean up these mines, uh, do the brush and the wildfire things that we do need to do, the mitigation that we do need to do here on the West Coast so that the Northwest isn't breathing in our fumes all summer and our and the, the smoke because the fires aren't even always happening in your state. A lot of times they're from Oregon, Washington, and California that is just blowing and polluting the entire country. Like how crazy is that? It's very crazy and very real. And our politicians still won't act. The person that I am challenging, the incumbent is a Democrat, D plus 20 district. She votes Democratic every time her entire career has voted Democratic, will not stray from party lines. She will not sign on to the Green New Deal. And that's actually a Democratic policy. But she takes money from certain organizations that would affect her decisions. And so um, we can't get her to support Medicare for all or the Green New Deal. And so if this county, if our country wants to see any kind of change, we need to look who we're electing at the congressional level, at your state level, all the way down to your water board and your public works administration, because those people are deciding where these utility companies shut up shop, how they're checked, how they're audited, and how often they're forced to upkeep their properties. Because a lot of the fires that happened here, 2018, 2017, the Thomas fire, the Woolsey fire, we had back-to-back -back three years in a row, the largest wildfires California had ever seen, the largest acreage, the largest destruction, both human and um, human, probably some of the old San Francisco ones take the cake, but definitely acreage and product, uh, uh, property and um, uh, economic destruction as well because of the farms and everything that was destroyed, the loss of life. Um, that some of those fires were found to be started by faulty SoCal Edison equipment that they have been negligent at upkeeping. They started the fires and they're still allowed to operate in California and no restitution, no damages, no um, any type of recompense has been has been made of them to um, fix the problems. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as we're kind of like transitioning away from this topic, I also want to say that, you know, on our previous episode, we talked about the devastation that was laid by PG&E. So if you want to hear us talk about that, definitely go check that out, because that was also what's happening in the northern part of California. Because yes, companies are not held liable enough for their role in the climate crisis. But yeah. with that being said, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have more with our candidate here. So stay tuned. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode, Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. 
We have a fondness for vintage-inspired clothing, shoes, and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at Betty'sDivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. So at the end of our first segment, we were speaking about climate change. And, you know, specifically, you know, I was referring to what happened, you know, back in the end of August, you know, like we are recording this, you know, in, you know, like at the, at the tail end of Hurricane Ida right now, but you're going to be hearing this episode in October. So a little bit of time discrepancy here, but I wanted to note that one of the stories that came up when that hurricane hit was the fact that, you know, so many hospitals were, you know, just unable to move patients, you know, because of, you know, there's just so many beds being filled up. And, you know, the healthcare industry has seen quite a hit over the past year due to the pandemic. And it is such an unfortunate thing that people have to deal with during this time, you know, having to be in and out of the hospital for various reasons, but it kind of like comes back full circle for me thinking about not just, you know, the devastation that we've seen because of the pandemic, but the cost that people accrue when they do have to go to the hospital. Medical bankruptcies are still the number one reason for bankruptcy in our country. That is a conversation that does not get talked about enough for me and personally. You have told me that you believe in Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you, why do you support it? And how do you think it would help? Because there are still so many people out there who do not believe that the government should be involved in our healthcare. They just think that if they are, it's going to be a worse experience for people. Do you feel differently? And tell me why. Uh, yes, I absolutely feel differently. I know differently. And I know that even that line of thought is decades of intentional misinformation campaigns that have been successful. I don't know if anybody, either you, Desmond, or anybody that's listening has uh, is familiar with Wendell Potter, but he is a former healthcare executive that has, since he left the industry, has spent his entire time, um, he was he um, did stuff with Michael Moore and other things. He's now written books and articles about and just laying bare and calling out that these are have all been intentional tactics to make sure that the healthcare insurance companies stay in power and get the most money at the cost and expense of people. Um, and so I 100% um, feel differently. And I think that what we need to start doing is having intentional conversations. And so I'm so glad that you're doing this with your platform and that um, it's, it's being discussed a lot more. Um, uh, real quick, let's just start with, with what's happening with Ida and the, the hospitals there not being able to evacuate. And also um, a lot of people, um, especially, and I can't stand this when I see this on either side, any of the aisle, whether you're a moderate, conservative, extremist, um, saying that, well, these, these people should have left or they should have evacuated and it's their fault that they're suffering because they didn't leave. 
and between economic inability to leave, you know, not everybody has the money to go rent a hotel room somewhere. They can't leave their jobs. They can't just pick up and go. And that is also what ties into the, the what's happening with the hospital there. The They are understaffed, underfunded, and there are fewer hospitals than should be because they've all shut down to consolidate into massive for-profit hospitals instead of the local community hospitals that there should be because they, those don't make any money. And so there's not enough places to put these people. These hospitals wouldn't be overburdened if we didn't have such medical deserts all over this country where there's only one hospital. So one hospital might be serving an entire county of 8,000 people or 800,000 people rather, how, how, how are they going to service that? How? Um, and so the, the numbers just don't add up. And then, you know, the upkeep, the generators failing, you know, different things, you know, there's certain, there are hospitals that would be able to maintain with these power outages, but they don't have the right infrastructure as far as their generators and their service equipment to stay open. So there's just a lot of compound issues there that would all be mitigated by Medicare for All because Medicare for All elevates everybody um, from the you know, independent gig worker all the way up to the corporations and the, the small business owners and the corporations. So from workers to employers, it helps everybody by removing the costs that we all deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. I personally spend over $100 a month just to have healthcare, and I still spend $130 just to get my medications, and I only have two of them. That's with insurance. I spend $130 a month on my medications. Um, so, and I'm, I'm a veteran. So, and I don't have access. I, 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 have a, I have a specific situation where I do have access to VA healthcare because I'm a disabled veteran, but that is another misnomer is that veterans automatically get healthcare and they do not. So for anybody out there who styles themselves a patriot or a supporter of our troops and wants to support our veterans, the best thing you can do to support our veterans is advocate for Medicare for all because it mentally unburdens them, it physically and financially unburdens them from having to take care of their family's health care. There's a candidate running in Southern California, the disabled vet, and she has to spend $800 a month for COBRA for her husband and daughter to have insurance because her disability is um, doesn't cover them. Right. So, um, um, Medicare for all would not be, here's the biggest misnomer going back to your, your question is people think that the government shouldn't be involved in our healthcare. And I couldn't agree more that they shouldn't be involved in the healthcare. The difference is that they wouldn't. The, the, the largest lie that I hear is that if the government takes over our healthcare, your doctor's office is going to turn into your DMV. Not true. Your doctor's office is going to stay your doctor's office. What's going to change is after you get seen and your doctor takes the paperwork to the back to his billing department that he needs 30 of instead of one, he needs 30 different billing clerks so that he can make sure that they have all the information that they need for the hundreds of different insurance companies, policies, premiums, and different variations of their different coding because each insurance company has its own level of coding. And so you need staff that can work on all those different insurance companies for whatever you're willing to accept. So that right there, when the doctor stops seeing you and turns around and starts handling the administrative, the clerical, and the financial aspects of his business, that is when the government takes over. Because then he needs one clerk, there's one sheet of billing to cover everything. And now there does need to be a discussion about who sets the prices, because I do not believe it should be the government sets the prices. They are not healthcare professionals. They do not know what these services cost. Um, to provide. So I do think that the doctors need to be involved and at the table for setting these costs, 
But once that is set, there will be one standard list that every doctor can refer to. This is what is billed no matter what patient you are, no matter what state you're in, no matter what your financial status is. This is the same code. He needs one person, maybe two or three to understand that depending on how busy his office is. And then he submits it. The change isn't in your provider. The change is in the pay to your provider. And so it's that's why it's called single payer healthcare. Now, Medicare for all is one of those things. It's one of those slogans. It's catchy. It pops. People somewhat understand it. But even with Medicare for all, it's a misnomer. And a lot of there's a huge portion of the elderly population who is against Medicare for all because they are under the misconception that it will be exactly like their Medicare that they have right now, where there's part A, part B, part C, part D. Some states opted out of certain parts. And even with all of that, you then need extra insurance to cover your prescriptions because they don't cover that. And you need another insurance to cover your long-term care because Medicare doesn't cover that as it stands now. And that's the problem with the statement, Medicare for all. I 100% support it. The bill, it needs, there's actually some tweaks that I would do to the current Medicare for all legislation, but I would 100% vote for that in a heartbeat. And that is gonna be the number one thing. As soon as I'm sworn in, I'm going to turn around and say, when are we voting on this? How do we make this happen? I don't have time for your photo op. I'm here to get legislation done now. This Medicare for all is decades too late. It's, it, I mean, we've got, Nancy Pelosi said she's got signs from the 1970s in, in her basement. Maybe the problem is that you put them in your basement and you're not still fighting for it. Maybe that's why we don't have it. Um, so it's it's been too long coming. It, this has been discussed. I mean, even Nixon and Reagan were for different parts of the thing that we're fighting for right now. So they don't agree with 100% as we have it now, but even Republican presidents and governors were for this decades ago. So the fact that we are still arguing and squabbling about it now is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so it would be not government provided healthcare. It would be government paid for healthcare. Your doctor would still see you. And to, you know what the biggest thing is, another big argument is it removes choice. I want the freedom to choose my own doctor. Well, we don't have that now. I don't know what kind of insurance you have, Desmond, or whatever anybody has that's listening, but every time I've had insurance my entire life, even through the VA, you're given a list of people you can pick from to go see might not be the closest doctor to you. It might not be the doctor you want. It might not be the doctor you used to see on your old insurance. Your company changed, your insurance changed for whatever reason. You no longer get to choose to still see your doctor. You, The only freedom you have is to now be forced to choose another off of some insurance provided list. And so that is the main thing that Medicare will completely eliminate besides cost is barriers to doctors, procedures, and providers, because then the patient will get to choose who they want to treat them based off the level of care they get. And then those doctors will actually be able to provide better care because they're not forced to double and triple book time slots in case people don't show up. So they still meet their quotas. So the insurance company still pays them. Okay. And okay. so one thing is, how are we going to make this happen? Right here, this sign behind me, cow care. I don't know if anybody knows the history of how Canada got their national health care system, but it went province by province. This was not a national movement that won overnight. What happened in Canada was they went province by province. And so that's what we're doing here in California. California is going to lead the way to national health care through CalCare. There's legislation put up right now. It's called AB 1400. Anybody listening in the state of California, AB 1400 will be reintroduced to the House Assembly in January. It was already introduced 
they got the question they always got, how are you going to pay for it? And there was so much backlash uh, from the assembly members that this the, the, the authors of the bill didn't put the financing in there, even though none of our legislation comes with financing to start with. They put up the legislation, you agree to fight for it, you're going to vote for it, now let's figure out how to pay for it. Just like the national fight for healthcare, the first thing they bring out is how you're going to pay for it. We don't want more taxes. We're already paying too much in gas, blah, 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 blah. We can't pay for it. So they tabled the bill and it's being reintroduced in January. And we have been, ever since this last January it was introduced, I've already done two not two um, rallies here in our county, Cal uh, our Ventura County. There were statewide day of actions in February and in April that we participated here in our county um, to raise awareness for Cal Care and to tell everybody and to teach everybody that this is how we are going to achieve national health care. So even if you live in a different state, if you have the opportunity to spread awareness or advocate for Cal Care, please do so. It's in our entire nation's best interest to get it passed here in California, because once it's passed here in California, which is the countries, we are one of the country's largest economies standing on our own, we can do it here, we can roll it out state by state and get it passed nationally. Okay, so that is a, excuse me, that is a very ambitious goal. And yeah. I hope that it can help because truthfully, what really needs to be addressed is the fact that our current healthcare system is essentially it just it's broken and yes. so any kind of legislation that is aiming to enhance it or change it or you know replace it that you know is trying to be better i'm all for that and another policy that we've heard of i guess you know like more recently with the reconciliation bill and then you know even previously in democratic primaries where people talking about making education at the higher levels you know tuition free so we hear about that, you know, currently in the reconciliation bill where they're aiming to do two years of free community college, you know, Bernie, when he was running, he was having, he was talking about having four years of tuition free college paid for. I noticed that on your platform that you have education for all as one of your pillars. Could you tell me a little bit about what exactly that looks like? Like, how would that be implemented and what would the legislation say? Absolutely. So it would be a variety of legislation probably um, because it, it would need to be rolled out differently state by state. That is one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that if, if you put out federal legislation, they believe that again, it's, it's removing choice and it's telling the states what to do. Where I believe the federal government has an obligation to set a national standard that no state can go below. And I think that that is where we have gotten lost is that we have you know, just left states to their own devices and whether they have the money, the ability or the desire to improve their education in those places, they don't for a variety of reasons. And so there are things that the federal government can do to help and set a bar and a bare minimum that all states have to perform and provide at this level. And then it would be up to the states to implement it as best it would in their locations. Um, I think that in universal pre-K, which is in the current um, reconciliation bill, I think that's amazing and huge. I think we absolutely need universal pre-K. I think we also need universal school lunches. Um, the stories that have been coming out recently of you know, children being turned away, lunch ladies having to take food off of children's trays because they are in lunch debts. I mean, what, what, what are we doing? What are we doing? And the argument that I've heard against that is, that feeding these children is spoiling them. Oh, I saw that out of Wisconsin. We have a problem. We have a 
we have a crisis of heart and conscience in this country when we believe that feeding children is spoiling them. It's just, we're lost and we need to get back on track and focus on what really matters the people and these these children they can't learn properly if they're hungry if they don't have a good home environment because the parents are worried about their health care worried about bills worried about getting evicted right now millions and millions of our people are facing eviction right now because our entire senate and house of congress has absolutely failed us they have let this happen they knew it was going to get they knew that joe biden's extension was going to get challenged and thrown out by the supreme court they knew it and they did nothing. We knew that it was gonna expire July 31st and they did nothing. And that's not what we're talking about. But the failures of our government are affecting us at absolutely every level. And so children should have the ability to go to school and not worry about their lunch debt, their, their school debt, any type of thing like that. So from universal pre-K all the way up to high school, absolutely universal public college or public uh, universal public education, 100% free. Where it gets dicey is there are for-profit colleges. And so those, we absolutely cannot tell them what to do. We can't roll into Harvard and say, you've got to have tuition free. You just can't do that. What we do have is state um, universities and state community colleges that are either locally funded or funded through the state. And that is where we can really make a difference is making all of these public community colleges and universities tuition free. But that's not even far enough to me. When I was in school here at our local, I went to our local community college, Oxnard College, got my AA and transferred to our local Cal State University, Channel Islands. And so I know how important these local community colleges are for low income people. These schools are making a huge difference in people's lives and the access that they have to an education. We are breaking generational curses through an education and uplifting and breaking the poverty ceiling that has kept so many of us down because of a lack of education. But it's not always about higher education. It's not just about getting a bachelor's degree because I have a bachelor's degree. And when I graduated with it, I was lucky to get a job as a supervisor at Starbucks. Let's just be real. So it's not just about a bachelor's degree. It's not just about getting a degree in communications just to get through and go through the marks or do this and do that. What we also need to do is expand access and make it 100% free at the community colleges, especially trade schools. Our community college system here is really cool. We have three different community colleges that you can go to throughout the county. Once you're enrolled in one, you can take classes at all three. There's a connected system. That doesn't exist everywhere. And so that's why I say we do, we will have to address each on a state level to see what their programs are to work with them. But these community colleges, because they're in different areas, they're able to break up. So one school, the school here at Oxnard that I went to, it's got an auto program and it's got a dental hygiene program to get people that don't wanna go get a degree in certain things. They wanna get into dentistry or they wanna get into auto shop. They wanna make a living with their hands. We have the, you know, the, the culinary school there as well. Then you go to the Ventura campus and there's a firefighting school and there's a nursing program. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but Moore Park has specific ones too. The students that are going to the community colleges, we get, we get financial aid. And if you're a California resident, we have a wonderful program here. Um, it's, called, uh, it's called the Pell Grant. Um, and it's, you know, I'd have to go back into the details, but basically if you're a certain income, they 100% cover your community college tuition. And that's super awesome. What happens is if you are enrolled in the auto program or in the dental hygiene program or in the medical assistant program, you don't get federal financial aid. It, it, they're at the same campus as me, getting the, seeing some of the same professors, going through some of the same programs, 
they do not have access to federal financial aid. It's not recognized. And so not only do we need to do commu public community colleges, public universities, we need to also make sure that we are funding trade schools and adult schools, because we also have a lot of people who didn't go get their higher education or who didn't even finish their high school diploma because they had to go get a job because we're working people. And like me, they started working at 14, 13 years old. That's when I started working was 14 years old. I had my first hourly wage job. Number one, that affects your ability to get your education because you've got to work so that you can eat at home. Number two, you can't even, when you, you know, something happens to your family, there's a loss of income. A, a parent gets terminally ill because they got diabetes and they had to have their leg amputated because they couldn't get preventative care and now they can't work. You now have to drop out of high school and go take care of your family. So adult schools also need to be federally funded because those people are just seeking a second chance at life because of whatever they decisions they had to make to stay afloat and keep their families fed. So I, I don't even think public universities and colleges is enough. We need to include trade schools and adult schools as well. Okay. All right. And that is something that I think that most people should believe in. Cause I think, you know, too often when we're hearing these conversations about college, we are hearing people say like, well, oh, maybe not everyone wants to go to college or, well, people can't even use their college degree. So I feel as though what you're talking about right now is kind of touching every like aspect of this spectrum versus just solely focusing on just, you know, four-year universities as we currently yeah. think about them. So I do appreciate that, you know, but kind of as we're closing out this episode here, one of the last things I want to ask you is, is actually a question that you touched on at the very beginning. You were talking about the fact that so many people feel, I guess, like disinterested in politics right now. You were saying that you want to like re-energize voters. There is a lot of distrust in the government right now. We are seeing yes. that with vaccine hesitancy, for instance. You know, people do not trust that the government has their best interests at heart. And this is something that's felt on both sides, but I would say on one side more than the other. And the question that I have for you as someone who is not just running to represent Ventura County or state of California, but, you know, the entire, you know, like people's house, what role do you feel like you have to play in order to help people believe in government again, that it can actually be a positive force in our lives? Follow through on what I'm talking about, because I, I feel that I'm already fighting for and advocating for the things that would make the changes in, in, in these people's lives. And um, you're, you're absolutely right that there's not only have we been neglected for so long and been misled for so long by our politicians and our, our government, but to the point where, and this is something here locally that we are dealing with, to where now when you as the government come in and try and help, this is what's happening here in our local community of Oxnard, who is a low-income community, is it, a, it is a community of color, it is a largely Spanish-speaking community, and they have been neglected for so long that now when you come in and you're showing them, hey, we're going to repair this public park, we want to upgrade your infrastructure, we want to improve the pipes because we know that these pipes are poisoning you, they say, no, no, I don't want anything to do with you, don't come into my neighborhood, you're only fixing it so that I'll leave because I won't be able to afford to stay here anymore, and then other white people can move in. There's such a distrust of your, so you're absolutely right. This is, this is not, a, and that's, these are working people. This is not red or blue. This is an issue of our working class people being neglected. The status quo has never worked for working people. And we're just finally waking up to that, that not only is it not working, but that there is a different option. And I hope to be an example and a representation of that. No matter what happens in my race, 
win, lose, or draw, I will be responsible for showing our community here that they deserve the help from our government and that the government is here to help you. That is one of the largest misnomers I have heard. It's one of the scariest statements you can hear is I'm from the government and I'm here to help, right? I don't know if you've heard that, but it's not wrong. There's a fear when people say things like that for a reason, because for too long, it has been to these communities disadvantage. Right here, um, right outside of LA, there's a, they did a documentary on it called um, Boyle Heights, which is fantastic about this, this community called Boyle Heights. It's a low-income community of color where they bulldozed through their neighborhood to build part of when we had the huge infrastructure boom with the highway and the interstate boom with the highway system. They paved right through these people's neighborhoods and didn't even bother to put off ramps so that this would bring economic benefit, tourist community, people coming in. It drives right through and gets you off at the next stop two towns down. And so not only are these schools, communities, and neighborhoods now doing with the pollution, the exhaust from the traffic and all of that, but they've actually suffered economically because they are no longer as viable because it's harder to get to them off of the highway. Um, and so <laughs> these people are not wrong in their fear of the government and what people are typically trying to do because it's not usually for them. It's usually something they're doing to them or at their expense or in exploitation of them. And so I think that the first thing I can do is what I've done and choose to run nonpartisan and advocate 100% for the people every time, everything I'm saying, everywhere I'm going. Um, and backing that up by who I am or am not taking money from. 100% grassroots, people powered, no corporate money, no corporate lobbyists, no, no fossil fuel money. I will take money from the workers in these industries. And that is an important distinction that needs to be made. I will take money from nurses. I will take money from miners. I will take money from coal workers. I will take money from any working person, from any person that wants to give me money. As long as you are not a billionaire, as long as you do not own some executive, anybody that has that level of money and power has typically no interest in what the people need because they've already got everything they need. They don't even know how much a banana costs or how we go grocery shopping, how we feed ourselves. It just doesn't even make any sense to them. And so, you know, I've heard backlash, especially towards Corey Bush and some other people that we don't have experience. If you've been almost homeless, if you've had to decide about paying your rent or feeding your family, then, then how can you serve in Congress? And I think that those are the people that need to serve in Congress because unless you've had to decide what you're gonna, if you're gonna feed your kids or pay that medical bill or keep the lights on or pay your rent so that you can buy Christmas presents for your children, you don't really know what it's like to struggle and what these people have been through and what we do to survive and how little things like healthcare, like a guaranteed education, like an increased living minimum wage that is tied to the cost of, or so that is tied to productivity and that so that it's guaranteed to go up so that we don't have to have this living wage fight every decade because it hasn't gone up since, you know, I think it's been over a decade since our 2009. living wage. There we go. So, and, um, 2009, incidentally, so 2008, the, the economy collapsed. 2009 is when I joined the Navy, and I was, before that, working a job making $8 an hour, and it was the most money I'd ever made in my life, um, and it was absolutely legal, and I'm, you know, working at the federal tipped minimum wage of $275 an hour. 
the fact that these are still legally on the books is okay is disgusting. And I know you didn't ask me anything about this, but that is a whole nother discussion that we could have about uh, wages as well. Um, so just advocating for the people, walking the walk when you talk it, sign, I'm, I'm going through and I'm signing pledges on who I'm gonna take money from, who I'm not, who I'm gonna work with, the things that I support and um, showing the people that running nonpartisan is the most democratic thing that you can do and the most representative thing that you can do because nothing stands between you and the people and what they need. I love it. If someone wants to get more involved with your campaign, find out more about you, where can they find you online? Absolutely. Thank you for that. So um, I've had it down at the bottom of the screen for anybody watching, but votefordaniel.com is my website. Again, that is vote, F-O-R, daniel.com. Um, and then on there, you can go to my contribution link at the top right. Top left are my social media links to Twitter and Instagram. My handles at both are Daniel, F-O-R-V-C. Daniel F-O-R-V-C is both my Twitter and my Instagram handle. Um, you can sign up on my website for my email list and stay tuned for events. We're going to be going canvassing and reaching out to the communities and doing a lot of public events. We do community care events every uh, last Sunday of every month. So take hot plates to people in need and a lot of other in community engagement that we could really use your support in. And as always, we are grassroots and people powered. So any dollars that you can afford to contribute to our fight for better, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your platform with us. I really do appreciate that. You know, everyone, if you are interested, those links that were just referenced will be down in the episode description. So go ahead and just click into the episode description and you will see those links that we were just talking about. Daniel, thank you again for coming through and for telling us, you know, like what exactly your plan is for the country, you know, like as California goes ahead and, you know, finally figures out what district you're in, I will then update that on the episode as well. So it'll be like district, whatever the number is, you know, maybe right. this will be 26. So all right, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode. We have one final break that we're going to take, and we'll be right back with my final thoughts of the day. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. So first and foremost, I want to say thank you to my guests for this episode, our candidate for the month of October, Daniel Wilson. You know, best of luck to you in your race over there in California. As of today, Daniel is running in what is currently California's 26th congressional district, but we still do not know if it'll stay that way when the maps are, well, the map is redrawn when redistricting is finished in the state. So as that is updated, I will be updating probably the name of this episode to reflect that. Uh, so at whatever time you're listening to this, it might have a different name than it did originally. But anyway, so the first thing I wanna say about our candidate for this episode is I absolutely love the passion coming out of Daniel. I've spoken with Daniel about, you know, I, th I think like three or four times now uh, over the phone or during an IGTV live and just really great energy. I love the passion that Daniel brings to all the issues and someone who truly cares about people and about pain that people are experiencing. And so I'm hopeful that this campaign of yours will gain a little bit of traction, 
best of luck to you going forward. I know it's not going to be easy in any congressional race. So I hope that things go very well for you going forward. Speaking of which, when it comes to IG Live, I have been thinking about possibly having some people on IG Live, maybe some candidates to answer some questions. If that is something that you might be interested in, you, the listener, please reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter, DM me. Let me know, do you want to see some congressional candidates, other candidates in general, answer some questions on Instagram Live? Let me know. Send me a DM. Tell me how you feel about that. Now, as far as what's next for the podcast on my end, I want to talk about YouTube. So for those who may be a little unaware, I have been putting a lot more time into my YouTube channel, and I feel like that's going to continue to be a thing going forward. If you are not currently, please head over to YouTube and subscribe. That is uh, definitely a place that I'm going to be putting different content on there. So I'll be having content on this regular podcast, and then I'll have content over on YouTube that'll be separate from this. I wouldn't say that I'm going to be focusing more on YouTube, but I'll probably be spending a lot of time on there in the upcoming future. So tell me what kind of content you want to see. I'm, I've been doing a lot of candidate-based episodes this past month, but that's not going to last for too much longer here. I have two more that are going to drop after this one. But then after that, we're going to be having some different content on YouTube. So again, send me a DM. Let me know what kind of YouTube content you want to see. But whatever videos you do end up watching, if you want to support the channel and support, you know, like uh, independent thought, please like leave a, a comment or like the videos itself. I have discovered that YouTube's algorithm is very um, specific about engagement. So if you are going over there and watching something, just please leave a comment, say awesome, or I hated this, you know, like you suck, stop making videos, just whatever, whatever comes to mind. Just leave some comment on there. I much appreciated. So for what's next on the regular podcast, we are in the back half of season four right now. And I have several guests still upcoming with a lot of topics to look forward to. We're going to be talking about carbon offsets later this season, uh, conspiracy theories. We're going to be talking about what it's like being an independent in America. We're going to be talking about the Hyde Amendment, nuclear power, uh, how Democrats go into the Black community and make promises. That's, that was actually a fun conversation. And also, universal basic income is going to be a topic that comes back up here in the future. And there's going to be a conversation around Cancer Alley for those who are familiar with that. If you're not familiar with that, let me tell you, I definitely have an episode for you coming up in a few weeks. So I hope that everyone will stay tuned. If you are not already, please hit that subscribe button, not just wherever you're listening to this right now, but again, also on YouTube. We have lots of content coming up and I hope to see you all in the next episode. See you then.